has been great uh, to worship the Lord this morning, and uh, I don't know about you, but I just, could have just kept on going. And thank you so much for your ministry and all that you do, the stage this morning. I think we had more people up here uh, playing instruments and leading us through song. It's uh, good to have uh, Danny and Rosie as recent additions to that team, and so it's just great to be able to praise God. And we're going to talk a little bit about praising the Lord uh, today, because that's uh, certainly in our uh, passage. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. This last bold move that we have to talk about today is that of Jesus himself and uh, referenced his coming back to life and defeating death in the grave and giving us the victory, which is an awesome, awesome thing. The bold move that I want to focus on that Jesus did was actually the last thing that he did while physically here on the earth, and it's, it's in Acts chapter 1. Uh, referenced briefly there in, in the last verse of Luke and again in the first uh, few verses of, of Acts chapter 1. But it's the bold move that he ascended into heaven and left the responsibility of launching the New Testament church to his apostles and a handful of disciples with no plan B. That takes a lot of courage. Can you imagine what would it be like if you had been hired to be the number two person working for a startup company, let's say someone took their life savings and they decided they were going to launch this business and they put all kinds of strategy into it, intentionality, they hired a branding company, they did some demographics and researched the market and they were ready to go and they hired you to be the chief executive officer, uh, the, the president under them as the owner of the company and the week the the grand opening, for whatever reason, they tell you, I'm going out of town. In fact, I'm going, uh, I'm going to be out of the country for a while. I'll be gone during the launch. Think of the responsibility you would feel for that. This is in your company. It's their company. You've passionately bought into it. You're excited about it. You understand the vision, uh, the mission of the, of the company, and, and the goals that you're wanting to accomplish. And now suddenly they're leaving it 100% in your control and in their absence. This is how the apostles must have felt when Jesus gathered them together there in Acts chapter 1, and he got them all together in one place and then he ascends up out of their presence into heaven and leaves it to them. But not totally abandoned. They were well equipped. And these amazing feats of the Bible, today's in-your-face question is, so what are you up to? <laughs> as the church, what are you up to? In 2019, what are we as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Christ, what is it that we are up to? Jesus boldly trusted the work of his kingdom to the church, and it's time for us to do kind of an examination and get to work, quite honestly. There are two questions every business manager should ask, and that's what's our business and how's business? I was a business major or marketing major before going off to a seminary to study for ministry. And, and sometimes, you know how it is, you know, you kind of got that, that passion for something. It, it drives me nuts whenever I see a, a company that's kind of lost their mission. It's just kind of, it, it causes me to almost shiver. When you see them get sidetracked or you see them lose sight of, of what made them who they are, 
Uh, most companies that are successful focus on one big thing, and they do it extremely well, and they make sure that they're the only ones who can do it to the quality that they can. And I mean to tell you, we buy into it when we see that. We know what they do. We know that Disney World's uh, mission is, is, is to make people have fun, and that's what they're all about. They're not providing a, a grocery store and a, a place to get your oil changed, whatever. They're in the business of helping families have fun. Chick-fil-A did not invent the chicken, just the chicken sandwich. And they do chicken very, very well. I don't know what I would think if I went into Chick-fil-A and they were selling pizza <laughs> and tacos. It would look like they'd lost their, their focus a little bit. And we in the church, we have our mission, our marching orders. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they began to give him some random answers. Well, you know, uh, what, you know, some people are saying you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist and you've come back from the dead. And Jesus made it personal. And he said, but you, who do you say that I am? It's Simon who speaks up and says, well, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're my Lord and my Savior. And, and Jesus doesn't just kind of shyly back away and say, oh, stop. No, he goes, you're right, Peter. You're right. And he changes his name to Rock. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You get it, Peter. And let me tell you that on this foundation, on this truth, on this, this fact that I am the Christ, the Son of God, that's what my church is going to be built on, and the gates of hell will not defeat it. Well, that ought to give you some confidence, right? And whatever roles you play in the church... As members of, the, of the, the body of Christ, as the family of God, as a growth group teacher, as a youth leader, as an elder, uh, as a greeter, someone who cuts grass, somebody who prepares communion, somebody who leads us in singing, you should feel confident today that Jesus, as he made that bold move, he had told his, his disciples that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. We are on the winning team. And that is an encouragement. He gave his apostles five things to help them launch the church. Uh, first, in verses 1 and 2 of Acts 1, it says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He's addressing this letter to someone whose name is Theophilus, and basically that name means lover or friend of God. This is someone who's very interested in Christianity. A lot of people believe he is a, a convert to Christianity already, and so Luke, a physician, a doctor, a medical doctor of his time period, has reached out to him in the gospel according to Luke, and he's given him all of the eyewitness accounts of everything about Jesus' life and everything that had been taught about Jesus so that, you, that people would know everything they needed to know. That's the first book, Luke. But there's a, a necessity to send him Another letter, another book, a history book telling him about how the New Testament church was launched. And that's why he says in my first book, O Theophilus. And Theophilus is addressed in both of them by this man named Luke. And so Luke is telling him about all that the apostles had done to launch that church. 
The first thing that Luke tells us in, in the first couple of verses is that Jesus has given commands through his Holy Spirit. Not suggestions, you know, not kind of a, a, an idea or a dream of, of what he wanted for his church. No, he gave commands. When you hear that word command, uh, you know, it carries with it some authority, doesn't it? If you command someone to do something, you're in authority over them, and it's not an option for them as to whether or not they obey. If they don't do what you want, they're in complete opposition of you and defiance, and we are commanded of what to do. He commanded his apostles when they started the church, and it says, through his Holy Spirit. And he chose these apostles for himself. We get all that out of those first two verses. He commanded them through his spirit, and he chose the apostles. When you have been chosen, and in this case there were only 12 of these apostles that Jesus had chosen, and they were witnesses of his death and burial and resurrection. They, they had seen him and been with him after the resurrection. The, the apostle Paul who is not called to follow Christ until Acts chapter 9, calls himself one untimely called, but he heard the audible voice of Jesus from the heavens. When Saul, who becomes Paul, is murdering Christians and chasing them and trapping them and bringing them back and trying to stamp out Christianity, hears the audible voice. Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are, who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he gets his attention. And Paul had a very real encounter with the risen Lord. Luke 24, verses 46 through 49 tells us this. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with from Jerusalem uh, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, these apostles are promised that they're going to have this power from on high come upon them. And, it, and, and he, I say he, personal pronoun he, this power, this Holy Spirit is going to give them everything they need to accomplish the task. Jesus appeared to his followers 10 or 11 times after the resurrection and including the ascension back into heaven. I should say 10 or 11 recorded times there that he had re, uh, appeared to them. Acts 1.1 pretty much overlaps. Luke 24.51. I like the way Luke 24.51 describes the mood of the apostles. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Their response to this, in Acts, it almost kind of reads like they're startled and stunned and don't know what to do. But here in, in Luke, Luke does kind of set the stage for us and tells us that it was with great joy that they praised Jesus who had been taken up from them into heaven. The second reason uh, that we should be encouraged uh, is that the apostles, not only were they told and commanded as to what to do, but they were also given proof by Jesus. 
Jesus wasn't just a great teacher. He wasn't just a persuasive personality. Verse 3 tells us he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You know, that's a long time, I think, for Jesus to hang around after the resurrection, to spend this much time with these apostles and preparing them and giving them many proofs. The Greek word for the many proofs there means convincing, decisive proof, evidence, undeniable evidence. Jesus had died, was buried, and he rose again, and there was no way that anyone could misunderstand that. This wasn't a look-alike Jesus. This was someone who could show you the nail prints in his, in his hands or his feet, the wound in his side. And Thomas, who had doubted, said, I'll not believe unless I put my finger in the wound in his hand and my hand in the wound in his side. When Jesus appeared to him and said his name, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And he was willing to go follow Jesus after that the rest of his entire life. The Nelson's Illustrated Bible Commentary says, The birth, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ are solidly rooted in history. Our faith is not a wishy-washy faith. We have is just a feel-good. Jesus lives more than just a memory in our hearts. He's more than just a, a, a reason to send a, a get card to one another and, and quote a few sappy verses that make us feel good, that just get us through life. No, in reality, Jesus rose bodily, physically from the grave, and that's a game changer. Chuck Swindoll suggests that our belief in Jesus as the resurrected Son of God is similar to a train where the engine of the train is fact, the car that's pulling is faith, and the caboose of that train is are the feelings. And sometimes, especially those of us who are longtime believers in Christ and are already sold out uh, to Jesus and, and, and we believe wholeheartedly in him, sometimes we focus more on the feelings. And to the skeptic, it just seems like it's a feel-good when in fact we have every reason to believe in what we have not seen because of those who have and went to their graves proclaiming it. You can be proud of your faith. It's not based on just feelings that serve as a crutch to get you through life. It's based on eyewitness accounts. Forty days, as I said, is a very long time. And most of what Jesus taught his disciples, you know, it seems like every, every sermon I get a little something out of it myself that I'd never really thought of before, and, and that is verse 3 tells us, he spoke to them about what? The kingdom of God. For 40 days, this is what he talked about. I mean, so much of his ministry had been leading up to the cross. And now that the cross is behind him and the grave is defeated, now what he is choosing to focus on is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is that place where Jesus is on the throne and we are his subjects. Everything that we do is based on what his word tells us he wants us to do. Is he the king of every compartment of your life? Does he sit supreme on his throne? Do you make every decision that you make based on what his word tells you is right or wrong? 
Because if not, then he's not truly the king of your life. And, and Jesus talked all about his kingdom. The church belongs to Jesus. It is his bride. It's not a club. It's not something we just belong to and have a membership to like a country club or an association. It's not an organization. It's an organism. It is the living bride of Christ that we get to be a part of, and that's pretty awesome. And he is the king, the head of the church, and we are his subjects, which makes a lot of decisions easier once we realize that. The third thing that he gave to his apostles as he charged them to start the church was he gave them an order, an instruction. Verses 4 and 5 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that verse gives us some rich theology here. It says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There is one Holy Spirit. He's part of what we call the Trinity. We're not tritheists who believe in three different gods. We believe in one God. We're monotheists. And he has three different roles um, and, and the particular role of the Holy Spirit is the sign and the seal of our salvation. He is the comforter. He is the one who enables us to please God and to bear fruits for him. I don't fully understand how it all works, but you get this impression that as Jesus is ascending, the Holy Spirit is coming, uh, preparing to come. I must go that he will come. He says it reminds me of, you know, when you go to King's Island and you're riding up the elevator of the Eiffel Tower. About halfway up, something passes you, that weight coming down. As you're going, to, it's coming down. And as Jesus was going, he was reminding his apostles, as I have told you, the Father is going to keep his promise, and that promise is that his Holy Spirit is going to come upon them in a very special way. You and I have the same Holy Spirit promised to us as a gift at salvation, an indwelling gift of God's Holy Spirit come to live within us. And this particular gift of the Holy Spirit that these apostles received as, as the Holy Spirit came on them like tongues of fire in this upper room was that he gave them the foundational gifts of the, of, of the Spirit to establish the New Testament church. The Holy Spirit gave the apostles everything that they, they needed to be able to write the New Testament, for instance. And though we quote them as authors, I'll say, you know, Paul said this, or Peter said this, or, you know, over here in James it says this. Yes, those are individuals with unique personalities and gift sets, but it's the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. It's not just their thoughts. You or I could write down some things that are true about God. We could say, Jesus is love, but that wouldn't make it Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. These apostles had this supernatural gift of God's Holy Spirit. They were able to give convincing proofs. Some of them, they were able to say to someone who's lame, who had never walked a day in his life, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And that person could immediately leap to his feet. These legs that had never walked strengthened. And, and that person being able to jump up and down for joy. Now, if somebody can do that, and everybody in the place knows about this person as being lame from birth... My guess is you'll tune into what that person has to say. 
And in Acts chapter 10, when the Gentiles received the same salvation that the Jews had received directly from Jesus without having to go through any other faith, they could go directly and have access to Jesus. There was a lot of skepticism of that until one thing was said. The, the signs that were given to us, Acts chapter 2, were given to them. Oh, hard to argue with. My favorite is how the apostles were able to preach one message to a multi-crowd. And each one of them heard it as if in his own language. Wouldn't that be awesome to be able to do that? And I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that that really happened. Um, the other thing, uh, the other person, I should say, is given to them, and that is his Holy Spirit, verses 6 through 9. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He'd been talking about this kingdom, right, for 40 days, been talking about this kingdom of God. And so they, this is it. All the prophecies have led up to this moment. He's going to take his father David's throne, and he's going to lead us into victory. Here it comes. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The impatience of the apostles for Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom is no different than our desire to see Jesus come again. Lord Jesus, come quickly. I heard an old preacher one time say, if Jesus doesn't come back soon, he may have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. The further we stray from our moral compass and the absolute truth of the word of God, the more we begin to wonder, why is he, why is he delaying? But as long as I have one family member or friend outside of Christ, I'm glad for every opportunity, every new day, that he has patiently waited for them to hear the gospel and to repent. He is not slow about keeping his promise, as some consider slowness, but he is patient. 1 Peter, 10, or 1, chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, subsequent glories. All things happen in God's way, in God's time. And the Holy Spirit uh, is a gift for a purpose. If you're a born-again, baptized believer in Christ, you have the gift of God's Holy Spirit living in you. What are you doing for the kingdom through the Spirit? What are you doing for God's kingdom beyond your own earthly abilities that you would be able to do even if you weren't saved? Is God doing anything supernatural through you? Is God doing anything through us as a church that people looking from the outside in would say, now they've got the power of God's Holy Spirit in them. The final thing is the promise, verses 10 and 11. It says, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, can you imagine? There he goes. You're just standing there staring into heaven. It says, while they were gazing into heaven, two men stood by them in white robes. 
And he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The promise I'm referring to here is that he is coming again. Jesus is coming again. And I believe wholeheartedly in the second coming. You know, the book of Revelation gives us a lot of indication as to, you know, he's going to come from the eastern sky and the sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll. He's coming back on a white horse. He's coming back and he's going to rapture the living and quicken the dead. Some people don't even know this, but there's a, there's a tradition that we have here, at least here in America, maybe in other countries, I'm not sure. But when possible, most of our great cemeteries face east in eager anticipation of that day when those graves are going to open up and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and those of us who remain and are alive at the time will be caught up with them in the air to meet the Lord in, in the clouds. Oh, what a great reunion that's going to be for those who are ready and are prepared. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus pro, uh, promised he would never leave them. I will never leave you or, or forsake. I will be with you always to the end of the age. And he fulfilled that promise through the Holy Spirit. Jesus was on his way into heaven, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. In John 14, he had prepared them for this departure. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many lean-tos put onto this house, room for all of us when the bridegroom comes and calls us collectively to the wedding feast. I love that question the angels ask. Why are you standing here? <laughs> what are you up to? <laughs> Why are you standing around? He's told you everything you need to know. It's time to get busy. Um, so Francis Chan, in his book, Letters to the Church, uh, gives this uh, example of businesses that kind of lose sight of the one main objective that they are to be working on. He says, suppose I was concerned about people's health, so I opened Chan's Healthy Juice Stop. I rented a building, I painted a cool sign, I had all kinds of uh, vegetables with happy smiling faces on them. Everything was set, and people came, and the customers who did come, they loved my drinks, and, and maybe I even had some regulars who came daily. But there was just one problem. There weren't enough of them. There are not enough health fanatics to keep my business afloat. So let's just say I decide to add whipped cream. <laughs> And once I top my drinks with whipped cream, a lot more people are starting to come, and I like that. And they're getting introduced to it, and so I decide that I'm going to add more. I'm going to add uh, gummy bears and chocolate syrup and M&Ms, and before long, I'm making a fortune. I'd still boast that my drinks contain some healthy ingredients, even though I'd know my clients were getting less and less healthy as I'd stray from that mission. At some point in the process, he'd say I should take down the sign. And as long as we call ourselves Christians in a church, we're about one thing, making disciples. What's business and how's business? What's business? Disciple-making. How's business? Jesus started what he, uh, what the, the apostles were supposed to focus on. He stated what the apostles were supposed to focus on in Matthew 28. You know it. It's the Great Commission. 
Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, meaning all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the main thing is that we be making disciples that we be baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that we be teaching them to obey God's commands. There are a lot of things that churches can do. Good things, great things. But the main thing, our primary purpose for existence is to make more followers of Jesus. Our purpose is not just to exist, it's to produce, to produce more disciples. In Luke 10, it tells us how we do it. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, and he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, "Mm, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. What we do is we make disciples. How we do it is we have a crazy, radical love. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit to where the kind of love that you have for others is crazy and radical? I mean, are you over the top in love with God? Are you over the top in love with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you over the top in love with people in our community who don't have a church of any kind that they go to and don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Are you totally sold out so much as a follower of Christ That you're in love with these folks. What does love look like? Crazy, radical love shares. That's why when someone in a life group has a surgery, the others in their group sign up to bring food to their home during the recovery. Why? Because they love one another. That's why we have neighbors that stop by the church to participate through Love, Inc., Love in the Name of Christ, and they come in here throughout the week, and Miss Rita helps them and assists them back here with our freezer that one of our growth groups donated for us, and they, they leave here with meat to go home and feed their families. That's love. It's why we filled this stage with peanut butter earlier this year and sent all of that peanut butter through Lifeline Christian Mission to feed children in Haiti and Honduras who desperately need protein. We love because Jesus loved us, and we want to show his, this kind of love, this crazy radical love. Acts 4.34 says this of the body of Christ. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Not a needy person among them. That's love. Love forgives. Jesus' followers show crazy, radical love by forgiving every offense from every brother or sister in Christ. Peter once asked Jesus the question, he goes, how often should I forgive my brother? What, seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. How many people know Jesus didn't mean 490? (laughs) Basically, he's saying don't keep count, right? He came from heaven to earth to die on the cross for us in our place for a crime he had not committed. Can you imagine how it must sound to God for us to grumble against one another over something that was said to us by someone else? Can you imagine how it must sound to God to hear us have hatred in our hearts towards someone else because we were treated unfairly by them? 
How does it sound to God when we say that we'll never speak to someone again because of what they did to us? And Jesus is probably thinking, you, you, haven't, you haven't faced the cross. <laughs> and if Jesus, who knew no sin, could, could say from the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, then we'd better be willing to forgive one another as well. This morning, I wonder, is there someone to whom you need to go and give a hug, be the better person, as they say, and say, this is silly. Let's be friends again. Crazy, radical love serves others. I learned last week that a group of men from our church family found out about a lady through Love, Inc. who needs a new roof on her home. And so they just immediately saw the need, and they said, hey, let's do something about this. And so a group of a half a dozen to nine guys or so uh, got together, and they kind of planned this, this day of service for this lady. And they're going to go out, and they're going to love her in the name of Christ. Why? Because that's what love does. Love plays itself out through serving others. Crazy love causes us to never see ourselves above being the servant of others. And Jesus himself illustrated that the best when he put on the servant's apron, so to speak, and got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of all of his disciples. And he stood up and he said to them, if I, being your teacher, wash your feet, what ought you do for one another? <laughs> I'm not above. And you're not above serving others in a radical, crazy love kind of way. And finally, love empathizes with each other's highs and lows. You see someone on Facebook and their kids just won some major award through sports or 4-H, and you, way to go. You celebrate those 25th and 50th wedding anniversaries, and you, and you show up at the funeral home too. And you cry together and you hug one another because that's what the family of God does. We're in this together. And it's a crazy, radical kind of love. So this morning, let's all make a bold move and ask ourselves, what am I up to for the kingdom of God? What am I doing for a risen Lord and Savior who the day of his grand opening <laughs> said, you're in charge or Maybe he didn't say you're in charge. It's up to you. And he goes up into heaven and he's given you the gift of his Holy Spirit and the proof of his resurrection and the promise that he's coming again. What are you up to? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus. I thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, for the way in which you've called each one of us to ministry. And Lord, I pray that we would never be satisfied with the status quo that God will keep the main thing the main thing, that we'll ask ourselves, what's business and how's business, that God will, will be about the business of making disciples, of baptizing them in the name of, of you and your Son and your Holy Spirit, and that, God, we will teach them to obey you in every way. And, God, I pray that you would put within each of us, through your Holy Spirit, God, crazy, radical love, not just church membership kind of name on a roll kind of love, but love that does something about it something beyond our own thoughts and abilities. And we trust you to lead us into that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.